Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning, for giving us so much in this life, so many blessings that we do not deserve and that we most certainly haven't earned, starting with our salvation. Thank You for showing us Your grace and Your love and even sharing it with us so that we might experience it through ourselves as we continue to learn what it means to live for others. We pray, Father, that those hearing this message be forever moved by it, and that they are compelled not only to live in the gospel reality, but also share it with others abundantly. For your grace overflows, for it is meant to. What a beautiful thing. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification, Part 6. Really, this is the crux of our faith. This is where it all begins, folks. This is why the Spirit has brought us back to this very thing. It's from faith to faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. So we have to have the gospel correct, folks. Now is the time to focus. Philippians 3.13 says, Forgetting what lies behind. Matthew 6.34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow. That cleaves out yesterday and tomorrow, leaving us doing this thing that truly does matter most. So let's take advantage of this grace we've been given here once again this morning. We're going to begin and end with the same basic thought. That is this up here on the board. Oh, didn't make it into my slides, but that's all right. Um, no dual mastership. This is supposed to be a slide, but that's all right. You cannot be alive to sin and alive to God in Christ at the same time. In other words, you can't have two masters. The Bible is dogmatic on that point. You cannot be alive to sin and alive to God in Christ at the same time. You are either one or the other, Romans 6.11. If you are saved, you have one true sovereign. Christ is Lord. Again, no dual mastership. You cannot be alive to sin and alive to God in Christ at the same time. You are either one or the other, Romans 6.11. Go there, Romans 6.11. If you are saved, you have one true sovereign. Christ is Lord. Something that is dead to you cannot be your Lord. Do you see? If you're dead to sin, made alive in Christ, then your new sovereign is Christ the Lord. But you cannot have both. And that's the premise, if you would, of where many a gospel presentation has gone wrong. That there's a blending or a graying out or a muddying of the gospel proper such that a person is told, maybe even in the absence of truth, 
that they can remain under the lordship of the sovereignty of sin and be saved. Well, that's an impossibility because the Word of God says so. Romans 6.11, Paul says, as part of his treatise on this topic, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that really is speaking to the point I just gave you. Dead to sin means sin is no longer your sovereign, no longer Lord over you. Again, dead to sin means sin is no longer your sovereign, no longer Lord over you. A gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel, even if it has the facts about Jesus correct. Again, a gospel that allows for a person to remain alive to sin is a false gospel, even if it has the facts about Jesus correct. There's a lot of this going around lately, hence the intensity of our studies. One last time since it's Sunday again. Why the intensity? Because we're supposed to fight for truth, folks. As Paul would say, I fought the good fight. I kept the faith. I finished the course. That's what we want to do. Jude 3 in the Amplified up here on the boards reads this way, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I was compelled to write to you urgently, appealing that you fight strenuously for the defense of the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith that is the sum of Christian belief that was given verbally even to believers. And so this is not a novel concept, folks, to fight this fight for the gospel, to want to fight the good fight, to make sure that it's not watered down so that people aren't tricked into a false gospel and then live in darkness though they believe that they're in the light. That's a horrible thing to be a part of, and I personally don't want to be a part of it, and I don't want any of you to be a part of such a thing either. Let me remind you of how important your time here is on earth and how much God thinks about your career or your home or your personal belongings or whatever it is that seems to be dragging you away from such things, from truth. This is what the Word has to say about your life. James 4.14 in the Amplified Yet you do not know the least thing about what may happen in your life tomorrow. What is secure in your life? You are merely a vapor, like a puff of smoke or a wisp of steam from a cooking pot that is visible for a little while and then vanishes into thin air. So you're not here very long, folks, and the things that most professing Christians cling to throughout their day are things that don't matter, things that have zero eternal weight whatsoever. As the Bible says, it's wood, hay, and straw. Even some of the good works that are done to amplify the flesh in their lives is just wood, hay, and straw. It was done with the wrong motivation, so God said that's no good. It wasn't done in my faith, so it's no good. 
And there are some professing Christians that think they're doing good, but they're still unsaved, so it's impossible for them to do anything good because a tree bears fruit after its own kind. And if you're not saved, the only fruit you can bear is unrighteous fruit. So we have a complexity here. Uh, although the gospel is very simple, man has made things complex. Satan has been behind it, motivating it the whole time. He likes when things are complex because it keeps people from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So these are all the things that have been coming out in our study. Now, if you think James was stern, how about Jesus? How strong of language did he use? You think it might be hard to beat James's, which was, who by the way was Jesus' brother. Be hard to beat his language, right? Wrong. Go to Luke 14.25. Luke 14.25. How about Jesus? Luke 14.25. So if we're going to study the gospel, folks, we've got to get it right. We've got to see the truth of the matter. Luke 14.25. Now... Large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me he, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty strong language, would you agree? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, you can come to Jesus Christ with a desire like the ruler, the rich ruler. How do I get eternal life? What must I do to obtain this thing that I would desire? Nothing wrong with that desire, but Jesus Christ turns around and says, you have to hate your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, even your own life, if you want to follow me. So he stops people in their tracks. And a well-postured, a well-articulated gospel should do that very same thing. It should stop people in their tracks. They need to weigh the cost even to their own self-life. This is what Jesus gave us. This is what the Word of God continues to give us. Now, that is some pretty strong language, but the word hate may cause some to stumble. Because I don't want people to say, well, sorry, Mom, got to hate you now, because i got to follow Jesus. Sorry, Dad, I hate you. I used to love you. I loved you yesterday, but look at this right in the Bible, so I hate you now. Let's not be ridiculous. Right? So, he does use the language on purpose. Um, but I want to give you some guidance so you don't stumble. The word hate is in a relative sense here. So let me just draw it out for you. Hopefully you can see that. This is human viewpoint. You might even say this is something that all humans, regardless of spiritual status, can understand. You know, on one end, there's and it's finite. Human viewpoint is finite. On one end, on the left side, you have hate. On the far pole is love. Somewhere in between, you know, lukewarm, however you'd like to look at it. But there are poles, and they're opposite. 
So you don't love and hate at the same time. Fair enough? That's human viewpoint. Okay, now, if we were to scale that down, this is the same thing, just scaled down so I can fit the rest of it on this slide. You know, there's hate and there's love. However, when you're talking about infinite love, which is Christ's love, the love that you should pursue with Christ, a love that's infinite even, bounded, unbounded, so to speak. So this line goes out forever. Okay? When you have this perspective now, what happens is, by comparison, hence Luke 14, 26, by comparison, when we look back to all of that, all of that's hate. Because on the divine standard, you should love Christ so much that the far end is actually hate by comparison. Do you understand? And that's what Jesus was saying. You should love me so much that by comparison, you hate your own family. They don't even compare. I'm infinitely in this direction. Does that make sense? And that is something you need to understand so you don't get goofy with the word hate. I don't know, people I suppose have probably done that very thing, but I don't want you to do that thing. I want you to understand what Jesus was saying. He's saying hate by comparison. You love me, Jesus, so much that by comparison, they're so far to the left, you hate them. <laughs> okay? So in other words, if you don't love Jesus so much that everyone else pales in comparison, then you aren't worthy of being his disciple. Those are his words, not mine. He then adds in verse 27, to amplify this point, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I was thinking about it. I hate to pick on moms out there. But who is most likely to tell their child something like, you know, don't do that. It looks perilous. Who's more likely to scream out the kitchen window? Hey, don't do that. That's perilous. Well, when you think about the cross, what the word cross would have conjured up in context here it would have conjured up a whole host of horrific things, including possibly death. I'd say moms are often most likely, or minimally, at least folks in our family that love us and don't like to see us under pressure or stress, they're the ones that are most likely to say, don't do that thing. So think of the point on the board. They're over here. They may love, but they're over here. And they're saying, don't do that thing. Don't pick up your cross. Don't follow the word of God. Don't be a disciple because that means you're going to get hurt. Well, that's not a very good thing. If they knew that you'd have a cross to bear, and again, in context, death would even be in view as a possibility, then they definitely would be inclined at least to try to stop you from taking it on. And if your love for Christ and your love for them are anywhere close, you might listen to them instead of Christ. The problem is that they'd be hindering God's will for you, like Peter tried to do with Jesus up here on the board. Remember this? Matthew 16, 23. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, 
Petrus. He just called him Petrus a few verses earlier. A chip off the old block, the block being me, Jesus Christ, he says. He turned to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And that's a very important lesson for all of us when we're talking about the gospel. So he says that to, to uh, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus was Peter's family at this point. Think of Peter's perspective. More so even than any earthly brother or family member would have been. And look at what he tried to do. What did he try to do? He tried to stop Jesus from picking up his own cross, from bearing his own cross. And that's the principle in view here. Look at verse 27 again, Luke 14. So that should help you. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Not maybe, no, cannot be. And it's amplified by his words elsewhere, like the person who doesn't hate their father or mother by comparison to me, he says, cannot come to me, can't be my disciple. And this is all part of the gospel reality. This is something that we need to express to individuals. Again, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I get that thing again, DJ. It's coming right through the crack. Is there any way to bring something closer? Or have people not park in that one spot? You see it? It's right in my eyeball. I told you, you teach the gospel, there will always be a distraction. Always. So I don't know who's parking there, but maybe we put a spot, a, a sign there that says don't park there. It's like a mirror with the, literally the sun coming in my eye. Nope, lower. Sorry, folks. Yep. Let, me, let my eyes adjust. Now I have those two, you know, the two white dots? I can barely see my screen. Okay, Luke 14, 27. I'm reading with my peripheral vision right now. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's a dogmatic statement, folks. Do you agree? Okay. We don't have the right to mess with it. Jesus also said the following statements in Scripture up here on the board. On salvation, Matthew 7, 14, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It's narrow, the road that leads to life, and there are few that find it. And he said in Luke 13, 24, Strive, contend, struggle, fight to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able In other words, there's a narrowness here that is very real, that even requires a certain striving, a certain struggle to get through. Is the gift free? Absolutely. But if it was that simple, he wouldn't have used that language, would he? No. So there absolutely is a reason for his language, his very strong, plain language here that there has to be a certain contending 
for this thing, a certain willingness to surrender completely the self-life. And that may not be an overnight process. That may be something that takes years, frankly, because you're so enthralled with the self-life. And as your desire for eternal life, for good things, as the Spirit's poking at you throughout the years, there's a struggle going on. I have to let go of this thing because you know what? If I try to take all of this thing as baggage, it won't fit through the gate. You see? And we don't have the right to tell someone that the gate is really wide that leads to life because we would be contradicting our own Lord's words. This is why he tells us without any reservation or holding back, unlike most evangelists nowadays, up here on the board, weigh the consequences. Weigh the consequences. A person's not going to weigh consequences if they don't know there are any. A person's not going to weigh the consequences if they don't realize or they're not informed that they have to give up the self-life that they can walk through the narrow gate with all that luggage. Part of the gospel proper is to inform them. There are consequences. They're wonderful. But there's a cost to this. Up here on the board. So weigh the consequences. A person must understand the weightiness of the gospel before they can be saved. They must understand and desire Christ as Lord, not just Savior. True repentance incurs the cost, quote, of surrendering the self-life. And that's what he's saying, Luke 14, 27 to 33. Weigh the consequences. A person must understand the weightiness of the gospel before they can be saved. They must understand and desire Christ as Lord, not just Savior. True repentance incurs the cost of surrendering the self-life. You see, the true gospel isn't quite as lightweight as some make it out to be, is it? It's not. The true gospel is not this thing that's completely captured on the back of a coin. There's scripture that needs to be consulted. There's truth that has to be made known. It certainly isn't lightweight as far as Jesus was concerned. Look at Luke 14, 27 again. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Up here on the board, carry his own cross implies dying, being crucified with Christ, burying the flesh, so to speak. These are all analogs that Paul speaks to in his epistle. A change in sovereign, though, to hearken back to the way we started this morning. You can't be under the lordship of two masters. So the sovereign, even, the lordship, must change. And you must understand that. It must change. You must be willing to give up being in that sovereignty, the sovereignty of sin, where the self-life thrives, where self-righteousness reigns supreme. You must, be, you must weigh that cost. You must know that you're giving that up 
for a life in Christ under the sovereignty of a new Lord, Jesus Christ. That's a consideration that Jesus Christ certainly demanded of those who wanted to follow him. We've already seen it a multitude of times in Scripture. It's very obvious, folks. Paul says it this way, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So Jesus then continues with a parable to drive the point home in Luke 14. And remember the context here is in front of the Pharisees and the lawyers who he despised. In context here also, disciple means believer. Luke 14, 28. Let's continue then. Jesus Christ says this, and realize he's not holding back. He's not pulling punches, folks. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? You see, the the Pharisees would have said, I'm going to cling only to my self-righteousness, or excuse me, I'm going to to propose that my religion, I'm going to keep the law, and that's going to be enough for salvation. But they also were still abiding in, if you would, the self-life, the sovereignty of sin. And Jesus said, listen, you're going to have to give all that up, my friends, for some of you have been making money off the church in the temple, because you're all related, seems to be. You've got a little business enterprise going, using the temple even, you're going to have to give all that up. You may walk after me broke because your income is unrighteous even. So he's standing in front of these people who built their lives and their reputations on self-righteousness, which can only be under the law, uh, under the sovereignty of sin. So remember that context. So he says out loud, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. We call that spurious faith, faith that looks real, that seems real, but has no real root system to it. There has, no, there has not been a genuine conversion. person says, yeah, I, I like this idea of Jesus Christ. I want to come to Him in faith. But then they're not striving. They're not going through that struggle. Someone maybe even lied to them and said, there's no struggle. <clears throat> Just believe what's on the back of this coin and you'll be saved. You don't have to repent from that life. Well, that's what results in spurious faith. Jesus portrayed a person who failed to count the cost of true discipleship as failing to complete their conversion. There's a lot of people who come right up to the truth, right up to the gate, and then fail because they're unwilling to leave the baggage behind. 
This is reminiscent of the second and third categories of unbelievers in the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, 3-9. Again, that's spurious faith. There is such a thing, folks. James talks about it. Jesus portrayed a person who failed to count the cost of true discipleship as failing to complete their conversion. This is reminiscent of the second and third categories of unbelievers in the parable of the soils, Matthew 13, 3-9. I believe this is where we shortchange folks when we give them the gospel. We have this problem, and I think it's a result of being, I hate to use the word politically correct, because that certainly wouldn't cover it, but it's that same attitude. We accommodate people. And Jesus Christ was not accommodating when it came to the gospel. He said, if you want to follow me, here's what you got to do. If you don't want to follow me, that's your free will. But I'm not going to water down the gospel to make you feel good about getting into heaven. I'm not going to lie to you about the thing that matters most in your life, nor should we do that thing. But yet it happens all the time. The strange thing about it is that even though we think we might be somehow making it easier for a person to be saved, the reality is that we are actually putting a stumbling block in front of people when we give them a watered-down gospel. If we're not up front, then we're actually putting a stumbling block in front of them. It may make the conversation go easier. They may even say the words, Oh, I believe, quicker. But the problem is the risk of a spurious faith, a faith that never actually consummates in saving faith. So you can have faith in facts about Jesus Christ, but not actually be given by God the faith in Him as a person. We call that human faith versus divine faith or God-given faith. So we can't water down the gospel is the point. We ought to challenge individuals the way Jesus did, as necessary and unapologetically. We ought to challenge them. Seriously. The challenge is against this old life, isn't it? The challenge is to them, do you really think, do you first realize that God is holy and perfectly righteous? And you are not. And you never will be under the sovereignty of sin. Sin is still alive to you. Do you realize that? That's the beginning of the conversation. That's the challenge. That's the, you know, the gauntlet's been thrown down. What say you of sin? Do you hate it like Jesus did? Do you despise it? Do you, need, do you realize you need a Savior? because you'll never get to God from that condition. And that's a very different start of a conversation than, hey, here's a coin with John 3.16 on it. You believe that? Do you believe that? Hey, look at it. Do you believe that? All right, you're saved. Let's go play some golf. That's a very different conversation, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's the kind of conversation that Jesus had, though. And if we look throughout the Gospels, He was very astute being the God-man at seeing people's hearts and drawing out just the right thing to challenge them on. 
That's why we use the whole collective of the Bible to find out what the true gospel really is. We ought to challenge individuals the way Jesus did as necessary and unapologetically. Jesus continues with another parable, verse 31. Or what king, again we're still counting the cost, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciples, disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Up here on the board. Discipleship. Jesus demanded that to become a disciple, one must abandon their ties to the self-life. They must be willing to surrender unconditionally to the Lord. And the same requirement exists today, folks. You don't get to keep your ties to the self-life and be saved. Those are mutually exclusive things. But a false gospel will tell you, you can keep all of that and decide later. Just believe this for now. So Jesus demanded that to become a disciple, one must abandon their ties to the self-life. They must be willing to surrender unconditionally to the Lord. The same requirement exists today. Therefore, as evangelists, and we all have a little evangelist in us, we are better off erring on the side of challenging than conciliatory. We're not trying to meet them on their terms because Jesus met everyone on his terms. If you want to follow me, here's what you've got to do. We don't have the right to water that approach down. So we are better off in my way of seeing things as far as the Scripture is concerned, with Jesus' example even, we ought to challenge people rather than trying to be conciliatory. And do not mince Scripture either. Some of you are probably wise enough to say, but what about Paul? He says, I become all things to all men so that some might be saved. Yeah, that means to go into their realm, to go into their life even. That's you on the job, let's say. That's you trying to empathize. That's you trying to sympathize. That's you going to someone. But you should never, ever compromise the gospel truth. So don't mince Scripture. In other words, our great example is Jesus himself. And he really had no desire to compromise his firm footing on what it takes to become a disciple or believer so that's the general consideration for the person who's not yet saved. They must understand that the gate is narrow that leads to life. They must understand that their salvation depends upon their heartfelt desire to repent and turn to Christ in faith. And during that decision process, however long it might take a person they must also measure the cost of becoming one of Christ's own, lest they fall away and prove their faith was spurious, not fully consummated. 
So these things have to happen. And we should not be shy about presenting the gospel this way. These are the general guidelines as Jesus himself has laid out for us. Now, for the person who's a professing believer, the Spirit's been dogmatic on this fact. If you profess to be a believer, then your faith will produce works. It is the great litmus test for those who proclaim to be saved. It's impossible for a believer to not produce works. If a professor of faith never produces fruit, they are proven unsaved. So faith will produce works. That's for the folks that say, oh, I'm totally saved. Well, then the Bible turns around and says, well, just make sure, because you will produce fruit. And this is what your heart should look like, starting with the great command of all, love. If you lack love, you may have a problem. On Thursday, he also gave us, just as a balance statement so people don't get too lopsided with this, heartfelt desire for godliness by grace through faith is fruit. We all start this thing from different places. Some are more, quote-unquote, damaged, let's say, or more goofed up, maybe, than others. Some have different situations. I mean, in all fairness, everybody's totally screwed up, so... I'm not trying to say it that way, but I hope you understand what the Spirit's saying. Heartfelt desire for godliness by grace through faith is fruit. Salvation and sanctification issues are heart issues. Works are never the basis for justification or what follows. If you're saved, you will have a heart that desires to do good, even though your flesh may get the better of you. 2 Corinthians 8.12 for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Remember, even the Bible says that we're each given a measure of faith. We don't all have the same, let's say, amount of it. Which means that we may not produce the same kind of fruit as the person to our left and to our right. We may not produce the same kind of fruit day one as we do 20 years later as a saved individual. The fruit could be extensively greater and different. But what the Word says is that if you're truly saved, you will desire to bear good fruit because you have God's life in you. And that's all He can do. That's all the new creature can do is good works. And that's that part that gets muddied out. Because if you forget that, then you can water down the gospel and present a different gospel. You can say, well, a person's heart really isn't changed yet. They can decide later. Well, that's not what the Word has to say. So if you're a professing believer, then you have to look at yourself. Are you desiring to do good fundamentally? In other words, if you don't understand certain commands yet in the Bible, then God's not expecting you to meet them right out of the gate. There's some learning and also some sanctifying work that must be done in each of us before we bear certain kinds of fruit. That's what sanctification is. 
The point the Spirit's been making is that we will bear fruit, even if it's covert for a time. In other words, nobody else is able to see it except God. Because God's the one who sees the true desire in an individual. He's also the same person who put it there. So if he doesn't see his own good work, he's like, that's not mine. Your desire, is, it's got a cloak on it. It's really to look good in front of your peers. It's really to justify the, the little religion over here. The one that says, well, if I do good works, quote unquote, then in this system of thinking, in this system of thinking, I'm elevated. That's just religion, but it uses the same language. It says, it uses language like, I'm a Christian. It uses language like, I have faith. It uses language like, I know the word of God. It might even regurgitate scripture. But the reality is, if it's fundamentally born of self-righteousness, then it's no good. God sees the heart, so you can't fool him either. So the Spirit's been making this point that we will produce fruit if we're saved, even if it's covert for a time. For many new believers, simply obeying his desire to teach you the word of God will suffice for a time. The most important thing you can possibly do if you're a new convert is to continue learning the word of God, doing what you're doing right now. Take in the word of God. Take in the word of God. And that desire for truth, for the word of God, is your absolute evidence that you are saved. If you're not saved, you have no desire for the mind of Christ. You have no desire to take in truth. You have no thirst for it. You see? He, Jesus said, remember the, uh, at, the, at uh, what, uh, Jacob's well with the uh, Samaritan woman, take the water from me and you'll never thirst. Well, he gives us a certain thirst. And if you're a believer, the only way to quench that thirst is to do what you're doing right now, to take in the word of God. But if you don't have that thirst, guess what? You're not saved. Make sense? Yeah, that's what he's saying. So the very first thing as a new believer you need to focus on is taking in the word of God. When the time is right that you bear other kinds of fruit as you mature, then let him open the doors for that. Let him convict you in good time, in his timing. Frankly, I've seen overly enthusiastic new converts hurt themselves, hurt others, and Christ's good name by trying to do too much too early on. And they're not ready yet. This seems especially tricky in the ministry, which is why Paul cautioned with 1 Timothy 3.6 up here on the board, an overseer must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. There's a bunch of stuff that has to be learned. Trust me. So again, you you newer believers, please learn how to relax. Even your learning will take time. As Solomon cautioned, some people go flying out of the gate. They're like, I'm going to read every known book to mankind on the Bible, every commentary... Ecclesiastes 12.12, But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. And that's good wisdom. In other words, give this thing some time to percolate. 
Take in the Word of God. Meet your base desire to learn the Word of God and then see what the Spirit does in your life as it matures in you. And that's sound counsel. As I've taught you in the past, sanctification takes time. There's going to be an ongoing mixture of formal and let's call it life teaching. Formal training like this, that's why the spiritual gift exists. For the guidance of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. Read your own Bibles, I completely encourage it. But then there's also life. There's also a time where you have to apply what you learn in class to life. And he wants to do that for you. And he says, you know what? As you grow up, I'm going to give you greater and greater tests to prove to you, through perseverance even, that you have my faith and that my grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to prove that. And by the proof of your faith, you'll have even greater faith. And to him who has, more shall be given. And then you want to invest more in eternal things. You want to do business, like he says in his parables. You'll do business. You won't bury it in a mason jar in the backyard. And you say, this is my grace. It's mine. I'm not sharing. Well, that's not his love at all, is it? That's not his heart. And again, that person has to look in the mirror up here on the board. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That process of combining takes time. It takes time, folks. And human intellect says, well, I'll just snap two, and I'll just read this many books, and because I'm so brilliant, I'll just retain it all, and I'll just be in an ivy tower somewhere looking down at the rest of you. And I'm on a five-year plan, so hope to see you then. But I'll be up there, and you'll be down there. (laughs) And that's my plan. And since I'm sanctifying myself, that's the way it's going to be. Well, that's what the Pharisees said. Let's all sanctify ourselves in self-righteousness. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Get away from me. That's not my heart at all. His heart says, I desire to learn the word of God. I desire to believe in scripture like that. I desire to rest in the fact that he will complete a good thing he started in me at salvation. I'm not going to self-sanctify. If you're trying to self-sanctify and you think you're saved then you might not be, is what the Word says. Go to Matthew 4.4. 4. Matthew 4.4. 4. Matthew 4, verse 4, just to continue developing this concept But he answered and said, it is written, remember this is Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness right before his public ministry. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Remember Satan said, turn this rock into bread, if you're God type thing. But on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
To live on the Word implies eating, metabolizing, and growing on the bread of life, which is a process. This is a process we're a part of. Sanctification, therefore, is a process. Growing in the grace and knowledge of God is a process. But it's not just academics. There's life to live. We all, regardless of our own spiritual growth, must remember to identify then with the new creature. The flesh is not interested in growing in the grace and knowledge of God at all. At all. So we have another balance statement that I need you to absorb. The new creature cannot sin, is not able to sin, does never desire to sin. You, when you look in the mirror, you say, who am I? You are to identify with it, not your flesh or its love of sin. You don't like to sin, your flesh does. That's what we learned on Thursday in Romans 7, 15 to 21. That was Paul's discourse on, it's not I who, who sins anymore, it's the sin that dwells in me. It's the sin that's in me, in my body, in my flesh. So here's our baseline litmus test for examining our own salvation status up here in the board. A true believer has been changed. That's a fact, folks. Even though the flesh may get the better of them, they always want to do good, Romans 7.21. Their desire may be counted as good fruit, since it is indeed a gift from God. God sees the heart. And that's another important point, that the desire that you have is actually a gift. So if you haven't received the gift, then guess what? You might not be saved. You're not saved. The desire to do good is a gift from God. And I'm not talking about human desire. I'm talking about godly desire to do good. Things like, as you start off, I really am thirsty. For what? I'm hungry. For what? The bread of life. I'm thirsty for the Word. And as you go out there and you sin, you repent. When you realize it's a sin, a la James 4.17, you repent. And that's how it goes. And if you don't have those fundamental aspects to your own so-called walk, you're not saved. That's the point. And that shouldn't be offensive. It's only offensive to a watered-down gospel. It's only offensive to a person who has historically held fast to the sovereignty of sin, liked the watered-down gospel, liked being told that they were going to heaven, and able to still keep under the lordship of sin. The Bible also gives us other tests to consider, and they are more objective than some like to admit. For example, up here on the board, bearing good fruit, the Bible is clear that sanctification after salvation is guaranteed. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Not maybe, not if he feels like it, if he's done with his coffee break in heaven. No. You will be sanctified. And if you're not sanctified, then you're not saved. If not some forward progress, then you're not saved. If there hasn't something that you can identify with, then you're not saved. 
I'm assuming that these lessons, though they have sparked a revival enthusiasm for the study of the gospel, have really been aimed at equipping us to present it appropriately to others. I'm assuming that most of you are saved. I can't speak for you. It's not my business. But I'm assuming, given your tenacity for truth, given the number of boot marks on your behinds over the years, that you have a certain tenacity for truth, that Christ working through this vessel, this pulpit, has certainly pushed many of you back, right on your heels. And it's been very uncomfortable for some time now for a lot of you. And it's that tenacity, that desire to persevere, that proves that you're saved. With that said, Paul had no problem presenting this question to his congregation at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 13.5 in the Amplified, test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Commitment begins with study of the word. Examine yourselves, not me, or do you not recognize this about yourselves by an ongoing experience that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test and are rejected as counterfeit. Now, The Apostle John also wrote a lot about the distinctions between believers and unbelievers, and he was very stark and plain in his language. In his epistles after his name, he uses very straightforward language to describe the polar differences between a person who has been given faith and the one who hasn't. For example, go to 1 John 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4. And we shouldn't let this quote-unquote, unsettle us, it should be comfortable, comforting to us. It should make us more comfortable in truth, in the absolute dogmatic truth regarding salvation even. But someone who's looking for an out, like an attorney would, someone who's looking for a loophole, like... An accuser would, I'm using those words to describe Satan without using his name, but there you go, it's out of the box. (laughs) Someone who's looking for a, quote, legal loophole. You said right here, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm saved. I believe! Yeah, what about the person, Jesus Christ? Who's that? Well, he says he's Lord of everyone. Ooh. You see, it's not that simple. But that's the way a lawyer would posture their argument. Which is probably going to happen, you know, who knows, at the judgment seat, at the end of all this, for the unbelievers. They'll be arguing, who knows how he'll let them argue, but they'll be arguing their case. But you said, just like the Pharisees, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do X, Y, and Z in your name? And he's going to say, I never knew you. But didn't we do this thing? I never knew you. Didn't I say that prayer at that church revival back in the 70s when I was high on pot? Didn't? Or 60s? Whatever. Whenever that happened. I don't know. When was pot? The 60s? I don't know. How would I know? Right? Didn't I I believe that? I even got a tattoo that says Jesus. Dude, that says Jesus. It was close enough. I was stoned. Doesn't that count? He's going to be like, what, are you kidding me? You were stoned. Are you kidding me? You think that's your salvation? 
You gave me no thought whatsoever. You had no desire whatsoever to repent. You thought you were still righteous. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin, that is an ongoing thing, remember that, doesn't mean that we, because you sin, you're not saved. That would be diametrically opposed to the rest of the Scripture. What he's saying is as a habit. If your life, if your habit is sin, and just so you know, remember the context with the, um, the Gnostics during this time. They said that there was a split that there was the spiritual and the material, and there was a complete split between them. So whatever sins you did in your body, they didn't count. You didn't actually sin. Your body was sinning. So go sin like crazy. And then we'll posture that you don't sin because we're not the body, you see? There's a separation. And so John was fighting that. He's saying that's garbage. Read 1 John 1, right? So if you say you're not a sinner, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you, meaning you're not saved. So step number one is repentance. You have to realize that you're a sinner. So anyways, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. No one, in other words, who habitually sins because a real true believer will not habitually sin. And I gave you Hamatano, and I really just gave you the part of speech, if you would, present active indicative means an absolute lifestyle. So if your absolute lifestyle is still under the sovereignty of sin, you're not saved. That's what he's saying. If you abide in that, versus abiding in Christ as a saved individual. Again, verse 6, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Jesus also speaks about fruit-bearing relating to abiding in him. It's a fundamental tenet of doctrine in the Bible, folks. Hold your thumb. Go to John 5.38. Hold your thumb. Go to John 5.38, just a little bit more on what it means to abide. Abiding in Him means you are in Him, means you're saved. John 5.38 And just and remember this also, Jesus Christ did not do a whole lot of work on the doctrine of experiential sanctification, not that it wasn't there. He came to save. He presented the gospel. So when you think about the context of all these passages, especially the red letter ones, up front he was typically sitting in front of an antagonistic crowd. He's not going to sit there and pontificate about the spiritual life. He needed to get the gospel right. And that's what John captures in his gospel and his epistles. He says this plain, you meatheads, you morons. This is the truth. And he says it right there, John 5.38 could not be any plainer. You do not have his word abiding you, for you do not believe him who he sent. 
You don't have his word abiding in you. You don't believe him whom he sent. And who was he talking to? He was talking to the Pharisees. You didn't believe me. I came as Messiah. You don't believe me. The Father sent me for you, and you didn't, you didn't believe me. So you don't have my word abiding in you. You're not saved. It's that simple. A believer absolutely has his word abiding in him, and it produces fruit guaranteed. Go to John 15.4. John 15.4. Remember the context, and that'll help you a lot, especially those of you who are being transformed a little bit in terms of um, your conception of the gospel proper. A lot of verses out there have been mangled over the years, and they've done so out of context. Just remember that Jesus Christ came to save. His primary concern was to deliver the gospel. John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Up here on the board, brass tacks. A person who challenges Jesus' own or the apostle John's words in Scripture must be prepared to accept they are challenging God's ability to make said changes in a person. If the Word of God says the person who abides in me doesn't sin, and you say, well, you know, so-and-so or I abide in sin, and I'm saved. Well, you have to go back and say, well, what are you actually saying? That God hasn't been able to change you, but you still stake a claim to salvation? Because something's not fitting. The person who abides in him doesn't sin as a habit, as a way of life, as a lifestyle. What would you want Pastor Ed to say? You want me to lie to you? You want me to water it down for you? I'm not going to do it. Because that will just end up being a stumbling block somewhere down the road. But Scripture is very clear, folks. The person who challenges Jesus' own or the Apostle John's word in Scripture must be prepared to accept they are challenging God's ability to make said changes in a person. If you're struggling with any of this, could it be this? The danger of rational thinking? We aren't to use human experience to interpret the Bible. We are to use the Bible to interpret our experience. That's a very important point, folks, because there's an awful lot of people out there that haven't done the work and then come to the Word of God and say, well, this is what I think. This is my favorite. This is what I feel. What do you mean this is what you feel? Who cares about what you feel? Honest to goodness, who cares about what you feel about God's sovereign right in your life? Who cares about what you feel about the fact that he took a a one-year-old home with him after a whole year of suffering in the hospital? Who cares what you think about that? How that may or may not be right. Who cares about how you feel about Uncle Jimmy, who was the nicest guy you ever knew, but never believed in Christ, so he's in hell. How, how do, who cares what you feel? That's not what counts. Do the work and let him make the distinction in your own soul. 
And do not use your personal experience to interpret the Bible. Yeah, God is love, but it's not your love, not the one that you have to start out with anyways. I wrote a whole blog this weekend to drive home a very important basic point about rational thinking. Hopefully you've all read it. <clears throat> Let me give you a list of things I've heard over the years that are a, the result of human rationale. Things like, these are things that I've heard. Maybe you, in your own souls you can add some to the list. But these are the things I've heard from human rationale. Things that have taken people away from truth. Things that have become stumbling blocks even to others that hear such garbage. Such, I like to call them bad questions. How could a loving God sentence the nicest person I've ever known to hell just because they said they didn't believe in Jesus? How can a single being create the entire universe? Must have been that, what do they call it now? Grand design or divine design, that garbage doctrine? How can a single being create the entire universe? Do you know how big the entire universe is? We don't even have telescopes that can reach the end of it yet. No kidding, moron. <laughs> Duh. But you'll take his saving faith. Which one is it? How can a single being know everything? Do you realize how big the universe is? Human rationale, right? How can a loving God allow child abuse or rape to happen in this world? How can sex with someone I love be wrong just because I'm not married? This is human rationale, folks. And those are just a few of the common ones I've heard. And I'm sure you have your own that you've heard a thousand times over the years. But they're all bad questions and they're all meant to invoke human rationale. And as soon as we get into that system of thinking, human rationale, all bets are off. We begin discarding and picking and choosing scripture that we like and we don't like. Well, that one doesn't fit my personal theology. Well, too bad. And if you don't have, listen, if you don't have a problem with that, think about it. If you don't have a problem with that, that kind of thinking, you might not be saved. Because Jesus Christ is not okay. Eventually, these things are going to come out in your soul. Now, if you're minus the scripture, don't get all weird with me. Oh, but what about this corner case? I'll get emails. What about this corner case? Did you ever think of this? And all they're really doing is saying it's cloaked. It's really about them. I'm a little insecure here. But my friend, what if? Cut it out. If the scripture's plain, then that's the way it is. And stop using human rationale to justify your own ridiculousness. And if your ridiculousness is to your very core, you might not be saved. That's what the Bible's saying in lay terms. Again, from the blog this Saturday it came out. Regardless of whether or not God's word, for example, his commands, statements, revelations, etc., make human sense to us or not, we should never disregard it. Doesn't matter. 
If he says that's the way it is, that's the way it is. I took you all the way back to the garden. Hey, come on, it's just a fruit tree. Eat up. You know it's good. It's fruit. Looks just like the fruit next to it. Looks good to me. You know you're not going to die. Come on, that's ridiculous. It's a fruit tree. It's the perfect garden. There's no bad fruit. It's not like when you go to, uh, you know, uh, Whole Foods or whatever. Price right. And you get a bad apple and it's like, oh, man, there was a worm. You know, this kind of thing. It's not like that. Look at it. That's human rationale. Very old pattern, folks. Again, the danger of rational thinking. We aren't to use human experience to interpret the Bible. We ought to use the Bible to interpret our experiences. Please continue to dwell on that principle. And if you did not read the blog, please read the blog. If, you're not, if you've somehow stopped reading the blogs, you're an idiot. I'm serious. I have no problem saying that. You're a flat-out an idiot. There is so much grace packed into those things. It's, it's, sometimes I walk away, I'm like, that is awesome. It's like a, it's like a pocket uh, lesson. It takes you what? Unless you're, you know, Todd's raising his hand. Unless you're like DJ who has trouble reading, right? Whatever. He's probably dyslexic. Whatever. But he plugs through them, right? Every morning, oh, thank you so much. You know, I get a response. So if you're not reading the blogs, you're just flat out, I don't even want to talk about it. It has nothing to do with me, honest to goodness. Nothing at all that I put hours into it. It doesn't matter. Or Scott and Monica edit it after the fact to make sure it's just right. It's not about all that. It's about grace to you. And that is proof right there that you're an idiot if you're not reading them. What is it that you're trading them in for? Another day at the beach? But God understands, you see, because I want to walk with my lover on the beach. <laughs> and God wants me to be happy, so this is more important than reading the blog. <laughs> Let's just talk about how much we love Jesus. Let's not actually desire his word. Let's just talk about it. Let's just pretend. But anyways, did I digress a little bit? Not really. Not really. It's all related. 1 John 3, 6. You not back there? Did you not hold your thumbs? Hey, someone's like, I did. <laughs> Who's the greatest? <laughs> I did. I noticed my, 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 my friend or my spouse right here, they didn't hold their thumb, and I didn't correct them, so who's the greatest? I didn't serve them. I'm greater. I win. First <laughs> John 3, 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices, that's present active habit, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. If you're of the devil, the way John's saying it here is it means you're still in the sovereignty of sin. It's that simple. The one whose lifestyle, whose habit, ongoing habitual lifestyle, is sin, that person is still of the devil, is still unsaved, is what he's saying. 
It's that simple. And if you don't like that, well, that's too bad. John is basically describing two sides of the fence, and the fence line is very clear. Satan wants you to question the veracity of the fence line. That's what he does. There's the line, like, right there. You know? What if I only have sex, like, once every other month? What does that mean? I mean, where's the line over here? What if, you know, outside of marriage, I mean, what, what if I'm just doing this? What if I'm just doing that? That type of thinking is not godly thinking to start with. That's a person who's still playing some game. Satan wants you to question the veracity of the fence line up here on the board. I was thinking about it this way. It's an old secular proverb, but nonetheless, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. This is how important the Word of God is. The Word of God, look it, it's right there. It's right there. If you stand for anything, stand for what's in here. Learn the Word of God. Stand for this. Because if you don't, you're going to fall for anything. Don't believe me? Say, nope, nope. Oh, yeah? Look at this. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So if you're not getting your truth from the Word of God... You have a problem. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Let me use human rationalism to enlighten you. Let's use human rationalism to enlighten the Bible even. That's satanic. But that's exactly what he wants you to do. Because if you do it out of order, you can morph the Bible into anything you pretty much want. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan wants to peddle a gospel that includes the so-called doctrine even of the, quote, carnal Christian, which by definition states that a person can be saved and remain under the sovereignty of sin. That's a lie. This faulty doctrine is born of a faulty gospel. And I hope you can see it by now. If not, you will, if you keep plugging on. The gospel that produces such an error is one that proposes salvation doesn't include repentance and therefore a change of lordship. That's the one that allows a person to claim salvation without a lord. They want a savior, but not a lord. In other words, a faulty gospel is one that says something like, quote, you can abide in sin under the sovereignty of it and also be saved. Well, that's a lie. That's literally flat out a lie. You cannot. You cannot. Because if you've been made new, you can't even sin. Not from the new creature, not the... You that's new. That may be news to some people, and that may unsettle a few people, but that's good. Now he's got your attention. And I guess I'll finish with this because I'm out of time. Do yourself a favor and finish the sentence. Don't just say, I'm saved. From what? 
From what, honestly? What are you saved from? That's what people say. I'm saved. They equate salvation as just going to heaven. That there was nothing else. No work, no change in lordship, none of that done to make it happen. They just say, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. That may be true. But you've got to also, what? Finish the sentence. Especially when it comes to the gospel. You're saved from sin. Sin had its hooks in you. The person who's unwilling to accept that and then to let it go, to count the cost of letting go is unsaved. Period. I didn't say that. That's the word of God. Do we need to recount everything? How much scripture have we gone to in the last six lessons? A ton. And it all says the exact same thing. If you're still under the sovereignty of sin, you're not saved. You cannot be. John just said, plain statement, look, those who abide in him don't sin. Plain as day. So we are saved from sin. What's the Spirit doing for all of you? He's making sure you have the right godly perspective on the gospel. He wants you to have the godly perspective on the gospel. The gospel is not believe these facts and you're saved. The gospel is follow me. All you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you what? Rest. But to follow him implies you have to give up that thing. You have to surrender wholly to him. Or else he said in the beginning of a lesson, you cannot be my disciple. So we are saved from sin, from the sovereignty of it. Romans 6, 6 to 7, and I'll close. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves. That's that doula eo, doulos, slaves. That implies a lordship. Being a slave implies what? A master. A master is lord. Hello, right? That we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is what? Freed from sin. That means they're no longer, those who are saved are no longer under the lordship of the sovereignty of sin. Which means they abide in Christ. And his word abides in them. And if they continue to live a lifestyle of sin under the sovereignty, the lordship of sin, they need to look in the mirror right now and say to themselves, am I even saved? Because the word of God says plainly, I wouldn't be able to do that if I was. Do not take the garbage bait that there's such a thing as a quote-unquote carnal believer, a person who can be under this sovereign and still be saved. That discounts all the verses and the passages and there's many, many more that we just noted about the true change that happens at salvation. 
I think I'll stop there. Amen? All right, let's, let's bow our heads. I would like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. John 3.16 does state, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So if you know that you're a sinner and you truly repent and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then accept God's gift now, that is Christ himself, the indescribable gift, and be saved. If you just believe for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for another wonderful time of fellowship in your Son's good name. Lord God, we pray that this message, that this entire series be multiplied outbound to a world that seems to be accelerating away from truth. We pray that we abide in your will and that this ministry have impact of eternal weight. We pray for those not with us this morning that ought to be. We pray for those unable to be here due to illness. And we pray that those still struggling in this world finally realize that the self-life is no life at all, for it is dead. May those individuals repent and be saved. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Good release. Thank you.